Hey, you know, there have been some bad marriage proposals over the course of human history. Some of you in this room may be able to compete with some of these, and, and uh, you can just keep those to yourself. Uh, but just a few that I found this week that stood out to me, one guy asked his eventual wife, believe they were sitting together, and he said, hey, how much weight can you lose by September? And she said, excuse me? And he said, I was thinking, well, that, that could be when the wedding is. Uh, they got married, believe it or not. Yeah. This other couple got married. I don't think it lasted, though, because this guy decided for his girlfriend that he was going to buy her a, a diamond ring for her birthday, not to propose. You can see how this went. She received the gift, and she opened the package, and there was the diamond ring, and she got teary-eyed, and she looked at him and said, yes, and he went through with it anyways. Yeah, that, that one didn't last. And then there's this one. A, a guy decided the right time to propose to his girlfriend was while they were visiting the grave of her recently deceased grandmother and putting flowers on her tombstone. He decided that was the moment. Yep, this is the time I'm going to get down on a knee and ask her to be my wife. Uh, those are good examples of how not to propose. I don't know if there's anybody in the room that's uh, thinking about getting married anytime soon that I would not plan on proposing any of those ways. It's not hard to find examples of, of how not to do things. For example, you can talk to Jerry Jones about how not to win the Super Bowl for almost 30 years. He's got plenty of experience there. He'll be able to tell you. Or you can talk to our current uh, federal government about how not to protect a border. They'll, they'll tell you all about that, too. This morning, we're going to look into a topic that uh, you may not expect to study in church, and that is how not to follow Jesus. We're going to talk about how not to follow Jesus, not because I hope that you'll decide not to follow him, but because I want you to know what to avoid if you hope to avoid the fate of a fraudulent faith. So take your Bibles and turn to John chapter 6, if you will. John chapter 6, we're beginning in verse 14. If you're new with us or weren't here last week, just to catch you up, was the feeding of the 5,000. They had this massive crowd, 5,000 men, probably fifteen to 20,000 people. Think a sold-out American Airlines Center. Jesus fed all of them with five loaves and two fish. Clearly a miracle. And so in verse 14, we pick up and it says, When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, This is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So they, the, the crowds see what Jesus has done, and, and they conclude, surely this is the prophet. Now, what are they talking about with the prophet? Well, this goes back to Deuteronomy 18.18. 18. God told Moses, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among the brothers. This became, and rightly so, a messianic passage. This was a passage that the Jewish people looked to and said, the future Messiah is going to be the prophet like Moses. You'll remember back in John chapter 1, they had gone to John the Baptist and said, are you the prophet? And John the Baptist had rightly said, no, I'm not. This time they get it right. Jesus is the one like Moses that God was going to raise up. However, their expectations from this point forward were not exactly in keeping with Jesus' plan. In verse 15, it said that Jesus withdrew because he perceived that they were about to take him by force to make him king. Okay, so how do they go from prophet to king? Well, this way. The messianic expectations of the Old Testament. The Old Testament prophecy said that the Messiah would be prophet, priest, 
and king, that he was going to hold all three roles. We just saw the text where he was going to be the prophet. In Psalm 110.4, says, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are, speaking to the Messiah, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. This is something the writer of Hebrews develops in relation to Jesus. And so the prophet, the priest, but then what we're talking about right now is the king. Psalm chapter 2, verse 6, Yahweh, the Lord said, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, Jerusalem, my holy hill. Or how about in Micah 5, 2, speaking of Bethlehem, from you shall come forth one who is to be ruler in Israel. There's the king language again there in that passage. Or another one in Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9, behold, your king is coming to you, righteous in having salvation is he. So, so the, the expectations of the crowds, when they see Jesus feeding the 5,000 in the 10, 15, 20,000, and they'd seen and heard about all of the other things that Jesus had been doing, they're starting to think to themselves, this one might be the one we've been waiting for. He might be the Messiah. And so they assume, well, he must be the prophet. And then they think, well, if he's the prophet, then surely he's going to be the king. You remember back, we talked about the fact that there was that time marker that John gave back in John chapter 6, verse 4, that the Passover was at hand. In other words, what was going on is there was a, a general mosaic air or a mosaic tenor about the environment that was happening during this time. People were watching and waiting, and their Passover was about to be celebrated, and now they're seeing Jesus, who's the prophet like Moses, and everybody's expecting great things from Jesus. In fact, you remember the Passover celebrated the fact that Moses led his people out of slavery from Egypt. Now the people are looking at Jesus here in John chapter 6, thinking, you're the prophet like Moses. You can be the king. You're going to get rid of Rome now, because the problem wasn't Egypt anymore for the people. The problem now was Rome. And they wanted the kingdom restored. They wanted to rise to the, the glory of the Solomonic era again. They wanted the, the, the Davidic heir, the Davidic king to take his place and be the king of kings and the lord of lords. And they wanted Rome to get out of the picture. And so that's what's going on. That's why they're so excited about Jesus right now. But you remember back in John chapter 2 when Mary went to Jesus and said, Hey, uh, son, they ran out of wine at the wedding. You remember one of the things Jesus told Mary? He said, my hour has not yet come. The, the time for me to be revealed, the time for me to, to pull back the curtain on my glory and to be the one, the, 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 the glorious king of kings, it's not yet, Mary. And Mary responded, well. Well, here we have a similar situation where the crowd is beckoning Jesus to step into this role to be the king of kings and the Lord of lords. See, the crowd here wants the Revelation 19 Jesus, but before the Revelation 19 Jesus, we had to get the Jesus that was walking towards the cross here in the Gospels. See, Jesus' mood to withdraw to the mountain by himself was an act as much of mercy and compassion on this crowd as much as it was an act of obedience to the Father's timing. Because if the crowd got their wish here, and if the crowd took Jesus and made Jesus the king that they were wanting, the messianic king, the glorious conquering king who will come back and is coming back someday. But if they had taken him and he had stepped into that role right now, guess what, y'all? They were in trouble and we're in trouble because the cross hasn't yet happened. And so this crowd was trying to force timing that wasn't theirs to force. This crowd is trying to get God to do what they wanted God to do according to their plan and their timeline and their desires. And yet Jesus, in his mercy and his compassion, withdraws. It's easy for you and I to sit here this morning and kind of scoff at the crowd. And say, well, what were they thinking? Don't they know? He had to go to the cross first before he was going to be the king. 
But before we get too high on our horse, we should probably admit that there are times that we also try to force God's timing in our own lives. That we try to say, you know what, God, it'd be great if, if you did this right now when I need it done according to my desires and my time frame. We're talking about how not to follow Jesus this morning. If you're looking for how not to follow Jesus this morning, a good place to begin is point number one, try to force his timing. Try to force his timing in your life. Y'all, this can show up in, in small ways as much as it can show up in the big ways. You may think, well, I, I don't know that I, I have too much of a problem with this area. How about this passage in James chapter 4? James chapter 4, James wrote, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. You're trading on God's timing. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. And so you see, even in some of the small things, our small flippant conversations and casual plans that we make, we presume on God's timing. We think, well, God's timing must be my timing. It makes sense after all. Try to force God's timing. But not only can this show up in the small ways, it, it often does show up in the big ways too, doesn't it? Maybe some of you out there have struggled with fertility. You're waiting on God's timing on something that, man, your timing was a year ago, two years ago. And you're wondering, God, are you going to answer my prayers? And now you've been presented with opportunities maybe and you're sitting there and you're wrestling with things because you, you have eth ethical reservations about some of the choices that are being proffered to you and yet you're sitting there going, but I want a baby. Clearly God wants me to have this too, doesn't he? That's a super in your kitchen kind of way to talk about forcing God's timing. Or maybe it's the salvation of a, a loved one. Maybe it's the salvation of your spouse. You've been praying, God, save them. You've shared the gospel with them. you put books on the gospel in front of them. You've gotten them audiobooks to listen to on the gospel. You've, you've invited them to church. You've made them go to men's Bible study. You've done all of these things, and you're sitting there going, God, will, when will you save him? And now you're left in the waiting period saying, am I going to trust God's timing? Or am I going to try to force God's timing? And maybe enforcing God's timing, you're going to drive him further away from the gospel than he already is. Or maybe it's in the area of finances. God has provided you a job. He's given you a house. But you know what? You kind of like a little bit more than you're making right now. And surely God wants you to be able to have a house in a better school zone for your kids. That, that, he would want that for me. Even if it means going into debt a little bit. Even if it means, you know, that, that, that. My wife has to pick up a, a job, even if it means, you know, we've got to stretch to make things meet and, and spend beyond our means. But, but God would want us to have this. Surely he does. Trying to force God's timing is never a safe place for you to be. I learned this lesson the hard way. I was a pastor in Missouri as a youth and worship pastor there for a time and got to a place where in talking with the elders of the church there, I, I said, you know, I think it's, it's time for me to, to move on and, and go to another uh, position and, and perhaps pursue a role as a senior pastor. And so I began to look for another job with their blessing and uh, an opportunity presented itself in Arizona. And it was for a job that was going to be an interim 
position and I was going to be there for about six months and then take over as the lead pastor there. And so I talked about it briefly with my wife and I, I think I said a few prayers about it and then I just took the job. I mean, I went through the interview process, <laughs> but I took the job, but I, I ended up there y'all. And I, I quickly realized, man, I took this impulsively without really waiting on God's timing on this. I tried to force God's timing and I ended up leaving a really great church and putting my family into a position that was really, really difficult for us for a few years. I mean, God was kind to bring us out of that, but he also humbled me greatly in the process. God's timing is a hard thing to wait on. So some diagnostic thoughts for you to think about as you think about how do I know if I'm really pursuing God's timing or not? Uh, Number one is this, just because a door opens doesn't mean that it's God's timing for you to take that door. An open door does not automatically equal God's will. Number two, honestly assess the wisdom of the body of Christ. When you have that open door, talk to believers, talk to other Christians, come in and meet with the pastors, talk to us, get counsel, get wisdom, get input from believers in the body of Christ. That's another reason, by the way, shameless plug for community groups. To have that that circle that you can lean into and trust in that's going to be praying with you and for you during that time. And then third, as you're assessing these things, ask the Lord continually to reveal your motives and help you mortify your flesh. Ask him to help you continually reveal your motives. God, am I doing this for the right reason? Do I want this in the right reason? Is this your timing and not just my timing? Trying to force God's timing is a surefire way to end up disappointed in life because we're lousy at being sovereign. Thankfully, he's not. A school of patient trust in God's timing is a difficult one at times, but the fruit of our time there is well worth it. Well, meanwhile, the, the disciples had gone ahead of Jesus. In our text, in John chapter 6, verse 16, we pick up after he had withdrawn from the, uh, the, the crowds and gone up on the, the mountain. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. Now, the synoptic gospels of Matthew and Mark record for us in this same story that they also have that Jesus had actually sent the disciples on ahead of him. So it's not as though Jesus left them alone and they were like, what, what are we supposed to do? I guess we'll just get in the boat and go and they leave Jesus behind. Jesus had sent them on ahead of them and they get into the boat and they go and a storm comes up, verse 18. The sea became rough. The, the Greek says the sea woke up, which is such a cool picture. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing on it. And when they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. Let's stop there for a second. So this picture, evening had come, and just to get a a, a glimpse here, this is not a a great map, but it's the best that I could do. Uh, That's a lie. It's it's an okay attempt at what I could do. But if you look at this, this is the Sea of Galilee. If you're familiar with Israel, the Sea of Galilee is north in Israel, okay? So the disciples and Jesus had been in the upper right corner as you're looking at this, the northeastern shore in Bethsaida. That's where we believe and where the text says that the feeding of the 5,000 had taken place. They were going back across the sea to Capernaum. So I want you to get that picture because it's not as though they were going the entire length of the sea, but this trip would have taken about six or seven miles and been one that these guys were very, very well versed in and familiar with. Because remember the trade of most of the disciples, they were what? Fishermen on the Sea of Galilee. 
So even as the storm blew in, this is not something that they would have been thrown off by. In fact, even today, there are storms on the Sea of Galilee. The winds come down and sweep down off the cliffs, and they come down across the water, and it can be pretty violent to the point that even today, boats that have modern technology are docked and and prohibited from going out onto the water when the, the waters get too rough. So this is a storm, and the storm is such that they are rowing, and it says that they were only to make about three or four miles when Jesus comes walking to them. Now, as the text would say in the other Gospels, it appears that they had veered off course at some point because of this storm. Because the, the synoptic Gospels imply that they were in the sea. There's language there in the original language that would suggest that they were closer out towards or heading towards the middle of the lake. And so they had gone about three or four miles. Now, they probably left in early evening. The Bible records that this was the fourth watch of the night. So this was about 3 a.m. that Jesus came to them. So they had been battling this storm for quite some time. Jesus now comes to them walking on the water. And what happens? They are terrified. They're frightened. In fact, one of the other Gospels says that they thought it was a ghost, There have been some commentators that have suggested, well, maybe they were closer to the shore than they thought, and this was just Jesus walking on land, and they thought he was walking on water. These are seasoned fishermen. They knew where they were. They knew what was going on. They knew that this was a a, a man that was walking on water, and they're terrified. Notice how Jesus reacts to their fear. He doesn't calm the sea. He doesn't get in the boat. He doesn't immediately get them to their destination. Is he going to do all those things? Yeah, he's going to do all of those things. What does he do first? He reminds them of his identity. He says, it is I. Do not be afraid. It is I. Do not be afraid. In fact, in the Greek, it's ego emi, which is the transla- translation of the, the Hebrew Yahweh. And so there are some that are saying that, that this could have even been Jesus appointing to and, and, and appealing to his identity as God, even in saying, it is I, do not be afraid. But at, at least Jesus is reminding them of who they know him to be. It is, it's me. It's, it's Jesus. Don't be afraid. It's the one that you just saw feed 5,000, 15,000, 20,000 people with five loaves and two fish. It's me. It's the one that you saw heal the paralytic man who had been paralyzed for 40 years of his life. It's me, the one that healed the nobleman's son by saying, go, your son is going to be okay. It's, it's me, the one who turned water to wine. It's me, the one in John chapter 5 who was saying, as you worship the son, so you worship the father. It's me who was saying, I and the father are one. I do nothing of my own accord, but I only do what the father shows me. It's me. Don't be afraid. See, Jesus could have calmed the storm immediately, gotten in the boat and said, guys, it's me. But Jesus wanted to remind them that the problem that the disciples faced more than anything else was they had forgotten who he was. They'd forgotten Jesus' identity. And so as you think about what does it look like to not follow Jesus, how do I not follow Jesus? Well, yeah, you try to force his timing, but second this morning, it's building on that idea. You forget what he's like. If you want a faith that's going to fail, when you encounter difficulty, when you encounter temptation, when you encounter trials, forget what Jesus is like. That's a surefire way to fall. Yeah, Jesus gets in the boat, verse 21. (laughs) They're glad to get him in the boat at this point. By the way, what's left out here that that, uh, Matthew records is this is the same instance where Peter says to Jesus, Lord, if it's you, 
let me get out of the boat and walk to you. Even seeing him, hearing Jesus say, it's me, Peter's like, yeah, prove it. In fact, in Mark's gospel, Mark goes even further and says this. He says, he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded for they did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. In other words, Mark's saying, they should have gotten who it is. They should have understood. This is Jesus. We're going to be fine. Even as the waves are lapping into the boat and the wind is blowing, Jesus being there should have told them, we're going to be fine because of who Jesus is. If you want a faith that's going to fail in the face of temptation, in the face of trial, forget what he's like. Forget, for example, the provision of your spouse if you're married. Forget, for example, the way that he healed your daughter when she was in the hospital. Forget that check that showed up at just that time that you had an expense show up that you didn't plan for or expect. Forget the kindness of the community of the body of Christ that surrounded you and provided meals for you when you were in need, that God provided for you. Forget his faithfulness to past generations of believers who have walked the valley that you're walking right now. In fact, even more fundamentally than that, forget Gethsemane, where he labored in prayer before the Father because of the weight of the sin, your sin, that he was about to bear on the cross. If you want a faith that's going to fail, forget that. Forget about Gethsemane. Not only that, forget also the crucifixion where he did bear the weight of your sin. Forget the fact that he went to the cross and satisfied God's wrath against you so that you have no fear of a single drop or ounce of wrath awaiting you in eternity. Forget about the empty tomb. What we're going to celebrate here in about a month, just over a month. Forget that Jesus walked out of the grave never to enter again so that one day you will too. Forget that. Forget that he overcame the greatest enemy in overcoming death. Forget also the intercession that he's been making for you all this time. The writer of Hebrews, he says, he's able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to him for he always lives to make intercession for us. That the, father is bef- or that the son, rather, is before the father right now pleading his righteousness on your behalf if you are in Christ. Forget that, though. Forget, finally, that he's gone to prepare a place for you. John 14. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I leave, I'm going to come again to take you that you may be where I am. But don't, don't remember that if you want a faith that's going to fail. Y- y'all, this was Satan's tactic in the garden, wasn't it? When he went to Eve, did God say, don't eat of that tree? Eve, uh, yeah, in fact, he said, don't even touch it or we're going to die. Satan, you're not going to die because God just doesn't want you to be happy. God doesn't care about you. God doesn't love you. God knows that if you eat that tree, you're going to be like God and he doesn't want that. Do you see how Satan was going after Eve's memory of who God is, of who she knew God to be, and causing her to doubt God's character, doubt God's goodness, doubt God's provision. That's the same thing for temptation for us today. Just like Satan lied, y'all, temptation lies about God. 
Temptation lies about God's goodness. Temptation lies to you about his ability to provide that which will satisfy you. Temptation lies to you about his promises and whether or not he's going to be faithful to fulfill them. Temptation lies about God. And so in your battle against sin, it's crucial if you want a faith that's going to endure and not a faith that's going to fail, it's crucial that you remember who God is, what he has promised you, and choose to believe that over the lies of the enemy. It's not just temptation that lies, though. Trials lie, too. Your suffering, what you're going through, that lies. That lies about God's goodness. That lies about God's ability to provide the relief that you so desperately want. That lies about the the promises that God has made to you in the scriptures, that all things work together for your good. Trials want you to doubt that about God. Trials lie about God. So in your suffering, it's crucial, again, if you want a faith that's going to endure and not a faith that's going to fail, it's crucial for you to remember who God is and what he's promised and choose to believe that over the lies of the suffering. Hudson Taylor was a, a missionary, a pioneering missionary to China during the 18th or 19th century, rather. Hudson Taylor often found himself in great need only to see a great God come through time and time again. But listen to Taylor's mindset, which captures the essence of this point so well. Hudson Taylor, during a time of particular need, said this. He said, we can afford to have as little as the Lord chooses to give, but we cannot afford to have unconsecrated money, money that's not set aside for the use of the Lord, or to have money placed in the wrong position. Here he says, far better to have no money even to buy bread with. There's plenty of ravens in China, and the Lord could send them again with bread and flesh. He's looking back to the Old Testament and saying, God did it there. That's the character. That's the God I know. He supplied then. He can supply now. He goes on and says this. He sustained three million. Okay, we'll give Taylor a break. Maybe two million, three million, numbers aside. He sustained three million Israelites in the wilderness for 40 years. We do not expect him to send three million missionaries to China. But if he did, he would have ample means to sustain them all. What gave Taylor such great confidence? who he knew God to be. What made Taylor willing to spend his last money in giving it to a needy widow to provide food for her? He knew who God was. And he knew the God that he had studied, that he had learned, that he had seen, that he had known for so many years. If you want a faith that will fail, forget who God is. Forget everything that he's done for you. Forget his character. Forget his promises. But if you want a faith that will endure, remember who God is. Remember his goodness to you. Remember how many times he's been faithful to you and trust him. On the next day, the crowd, it says in verse 22, remained on the side of the sea and they come looking for Jesus because they saw Jesus go up on the mountain and the disciples leave. So naturally they assume, well, Jesus is going to be back here. So let's go find Jesus again. And so the crowd comes back and they're looking for Jesus. They can't find Jesus. And they're looking, they're going, the the boat's gone? What's going on? Verse 23, other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten bread after the Lord had given thanks. And so uh, I guess the crowd at this point assumes he must have gotten into another boat and gone. And so verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum. Why Capernaum? That's what Jesus' home base was during his ministry in Galilee. In fact, even today, if you go to Capernaum on the gate, it says, welcome to Jesus town on it. This is where Jesus was 
in Capernaum. So they go to Capernaum, verse 24, the last two words, seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? When did you get here? It's a humorous scene. The crowds come back and they're like, okay, (laughs) we want some more food. What you got this time, Jesus? We brought better bread this time. We don't have the barley loaves. We got the good stuff. Can you multiply this for us? Jesus in there. Like, well, let's go to Capernaum. That's where we know him to to be hanging out. They get there. Sure enough, there's Jesus. And they're going, how did you get here? When, When did you come here? Verse 24, again, those last two words, they were seeking Jesus. That sounds like a good thing, doesn't it? We would hope and want and desire that more people would truly want to seek Jesus. The problem is, we have to ask the question, why were they seeking Jesus? Jesus is going to indict them in verse 26 in our next section when he's going to say, you don't want me because you want me. You want me because your bellies are full. In other words, Jesus is going to tell them, you want me for the wrong reasons. You're seeking me, yes, but you're seeking me for how I can benefit you. Not because you truly want to be my followers. If you want a faith that's going to fail, that's another good place to be. Seeking Jesus for only the reasons that it does you good in life. Only seeking Jesus when you feel like you've got a need that he can meet. This crowd was like those in John chapter 2 when Jesus said he did not believe in their belief for he knew what was in the heart of men. This crowd was a, a, a lot of people that were there thinking Jesus was going to help them and benefit them, but not understanding why they really needed Jesus. They were staying on the superficial. Third, if you want a faith that's going to fail this morning, only seek him when you need him. Only seek him when you need him. You don't need to pray, in other words, unless you've got a big meeting at work that you really need to go well this week. Then you're going to pray. You don't need to pray unless your doctor calls and wants to meet with you to discuss the test results from your recent blood work. Okay, then, oh yeah, now I I need to pray. You don't need to pray unless your company just announced that there's going to be another round of layoffs coming up and you're looking around worried that you might be next. Okay, now I need to pray. Have you heard that old saying, there's no atheists in a foxhole? The reason is what? And they are aware of how much they need God. There's bullets flying. Their life hangs in the balance. Or walk around the halls of a school before midterms and, and see how many students are praying that you would never imagine would ever pray. I remember one of my most desperate times of prayer was early in Amanda's pregnancy with our, our third child, Luke. And I remember being at my office and just going and working and studying. And she called me while I was there and she said, PJ, you need to come home. I think something's wrong with the pregnancy. I hung up the phone and I got in my car and probably it was only 10 minutes home. I've never prayed so simply and so desperately and so earnestly than I did in those 10 minutes. I was never more aware of my helplessness and my complete dependence on God than I was in those 10 minutes. Praying, God, please don't let anything happen. Please protect this baby. Please keep my wife safe. Please, not even knowing what's going on. I was just at the end of myself and all I could do is pray. Why does it take moments like that for us to seek the Lord so fervently? 
maybe it's these moments that we're actually acutely aware of how much we really do need him. But maybe it's not that these times are abnormal, but that they should be normal. We're always in need of Jesus. The problem with this crowd seeking Jesus wasn't that they were seeking Jesus, but for what they were seeking Jesus. The problem with you and I is not that we only need, only pray when we feel like we need Jesus, but that we only think we only need Jesus in those times. We need Jesus all the time. You know, one of the things that drove Hudson Taylor to the mission field was when it dawned on him and he realized that there were 13 million people every year in China dying without hearing the gospel. So he began to pray desperately that God would open a door for him to be able to get there to share the gospel with people so less people would die. You don't have 13 million people living around you, but you have 13 who probably don't know Christ. Are you praying fervently for them to come to faith? Parents, are you praying fervently for your children to come to faith? Husbands, are you praying fervently that you would be a husband who loves your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Wives, are you praying fervently that you would be able to submit to your husband as to the Lord? Fathers, are you praying fervently that you would raise your children in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, that you would not exasperate your children? Church, are you praying fervently for the leaders of this nation who desperately need our prayers? Are we praying fervently for revival to come here in this country because we need that more than we need a different party in office? Are we praying cognizant of the fact that we are always in need of Jesus? And so, yes, as you think about a faith that will fail or how not to follow Jesus, sure, uh, if you want your faith to fail, only seek Jesus when you need him. But let me flip that and say this. If you want your faith to endure, only seek Jesus when you need him, but realize you always need him. You always need him. I always need him. the mindset of that concept, pray without ceasing. I remember being little and hearing that and going, okay, so I wake up in the morning, I say, dear God, and before I close my eyes at night, I say, amen. Now what Paul meant, pray without ceasing, is that every single moment of our life, we live cognizant of how much we need God. That we need that, that line of communication always open between us and the Father. Thanks be to God through Jesus. If you are in Christ, that's the reality that you enjoy. And so only seek him when you need him. But Christian, realize you always need him. Verse 26. This crowd comes seeking Jesus. How'd you get here? Jesus doesn't say, well, actually, it was pretty cool. I walked on water to get here. I calmed the storm. I got in the boat and boom, we were immediately here. No, he says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you, you're seeking me. Not because you saw signs, but because you ate the fill of the loaves. You're, you got full bellies. That's why you're out here. You want me to entertain you. You want me to feed you again. And then he says this, do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, God the father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him whom he has sent. We've talked about this. Jesus indicted their motives. The omniscient son of God knows why they're there. He says, you're not here for the right reasons. Again, John 2, 24. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them 
because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. It's the same thing with these crowds in John chapter 6. He says, I, I know why you're here. But then he pivots and, and goes after their heart. He says, don't work for the food that perishes. Don't be satisfied with bread. But for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. A couple things to note there. Number one, he refers to himself as the Son of Man here. It was Jesus' favorite title for himself, so there's that. But I think the other reason, too, is remember why he withdrew in the first place earlier. He withdrew because there was such a charged atmosphere of messianic fervor that I don't think Jesus was about to say that the Messiah will give you or that the King will give you because he knew that that would have set them off again. So he says, whom the son of man will give you. Granted, that had a lot of messianic implications, Daniel chapter seven in and of itself, but I think Jesus is strategic with his title, but also that's the, that was his favorite way in the gospels of referring to himself, the son of man. For on him, the son of man, Jesus, God the father has set his seal. In other words, God has approved of me. This is in the wake of all of the works and the miracles that Jesus had done. So here we see Jesus pulling back the curtain on, this is why I'm doing the works. The works that I'm doing testify about me that God the Father has sent me, that he has approved of me, that he has set his seal upon me. And so much like the woman at the well and Nicodemus before her, Jesus wanted these crowds to go from the physical plane of their hunger to the spiritual plane of realizing that they needed to hunger for what he alone could provide them. Much like Nicodemus and the woman at the well and the disciples and the paralytic, They don't go there with him. It's this common theme in John's gospel where Jesus is trying to shift people's perspective from the physical to the spiritual. And he's trying to do that here again. But he wasn't just chastising the group for wanting the wrong things from him. He was mercifully pointing them to where real life could be found. Because then they say, well, what must we do to be doing, to be literally, what must we do, do to be working the works of God is what it says. What works do we have to do, Jesus? Jesus said, this is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he sent. See, Jesus' admonition to them wasn't so much about the the nature of the works that they were to be doing, but the object that they were to work for. He wanted to get them away from this meritorious self-righteousness to understand that what they really needed is Jesus, a relationship with him. And that would come through belief and faith in him. And so the crowd doesn't get there. They want to know, well, what do we do? How do we do this? And Jesus says, you need to believe in the one that he has sent. Believe in Jesus. That's his instructions to this crowd. Believe in him. Believe in his teachings and you will have life. Become his disciple. It's pretty clear here. It's pretty clear. It's pretty plain. It's pretty simple. But again, if you want a faith that's going to fail, If you want to know how not to follow Jesus, when we encounter his clear teaching, things like this, fourth point this morning, ignore it. Ignore his clear teaching. Ignore his clear teaching. Listen, churches today are doing this left and right. The whole concept of same-sex marriage and transgenderism and watching churches open up their doors and give and compromise on those issues. It's ignoring the clear teaching of the scriptures. Egalitarian leadership in churches is ignoring the clear teaching of the scriptures. 
this come as you are easy believism that says that it doesn't matter what sins that you have in your life. Don't worry about it. Just walk the aisle, pray the prayer, bow your head, close your eyes with every other head bowed and eyes closed, say the prayer and you're good. And then you can go back and live a completely debauched life and God doesn't care about it. That's a clear ignoring of the biblical teaching. Christian nationalism is an ignoring of the clear teaching of Christ. Y'all, our goal is not to see this become Israel part two here in the United States. You know what the Bible teaches us? If, if, and, and, and don't hear me wrong on this. I'm thankful for the freedoms that we have here. I love this nation. But I also know that the Bible tells me that in the end, if this nation is still here after we're gone, after the rapture has taken place, you know where all of our nukes and firepower and arsenal is going to be aimed? It's going to be aimed at Jesus, your Savior, when he comes back on that final day. Our hope is not in a Christian America. Let's not be confused on that. Churches are also bailing on this when it comes to ecumenicalism. Well, can't we just reach across the aisle and shake the hands of churches that have compromised on the gospel, that are preaching a workspace righteousness, that are preaching this, that, or the other thing, just for the sake of peace? But in this case, they were ignoring the clear teaching of Jesus as to where life was to be found. And I think that presses in a little bit more for us this morning. This group of people was trained by the religious elite of their day to think that to be right with God, they had to do, they had to to work, that it was about what they did, not who they believed in. And we can fall into that same mindset this morning. If you want faith that's sure to fail this morning, church, let me tell you to do this. Trust in your works this morning. Trust in your favorite Christian author this morning. Trust in your morality this morning. Trust in your church this morning, your church attendance this morning. Trust in your baptism this morning. Trust in your pastor this morning. Just don't trust in Jesus this morning. Because you can trust in all those other things and you're going to end up hearing Jesus say, depart from me, I never knew you. Because at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to get you eternal life, that's going to produce in you a life that endures is to trust in Jesus. Christ in Christ alone, as we sang right before the sermon. What does that faith look like? It looks like this. It means that you trust in the provision that God provided for you, the substitutionary death of Jesus. That is that he died in your place on the cross and satisfied God's wrath against your sins. So you believe in Jesus for that. And you also believe in Jesus for his perfect righteousness, that he gave you his full righteousness so that now you are not just not forgiven, you are not just rather forgiven, but now you are righteous in the eyes of God. We are believing in Christ for that. And believing in Christ for that then looks like a life of transformation from that point forward. A life that's lived, if I can speak broadly on this, loving the things that Jesus loves and hating the things that Jesus hates. Discipleship, in other words. If you want to know what Jesus wants, how do I work for the, the, the life that endures? You believe. You have faith. I know in this room there's a lot of doubt this morning. A lot of people struggle with their standing with Christ. And part of that struggle is because all the different voices that have clouded your vision so much that you've lost sight of the simple, clear command when Jesus says, believe in me some passages to encourage you as we close this morning. Romans 10, 9 through 10. Paul writes this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe, believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. 
For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. How about Ephesians 1, 13 through 14? In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, you were sealed. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our salvation until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. How are we sealed and how are we guaranteed our salvation? Through faith in Jesus. Finally, 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy. He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. And so Christian, if you're here this morning and you're struggling with belief, you're struggling with doubt, you're struggling with saying, man, do I... I, I, I struggle to, to, to be confident that I'm saved. My question for you this morning is, do you believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins and that in that transaction, he has granted you his perfect righteousness? And do you believe that three days later, he rose from the dead never to die again? That is the gospel. And if you believe that, then these verses, these passages that I just read are true of you this morning. And the life that now awaits you in front of you is a life of following Jesus. See, that's been the goal of this sermon is not honestly to convince you not to follow Jesus. Hopefully that's clear and obvious. None of you are going to leave going, we're never going back to that church again. Pastor preached the whole time about how not to follow Jesus. Listen, if you took that away this morning, then I did a horrible job. No, this has been more about, hey, this is what it looks like to have a fraudulent faith. And to challenge us to say, man, I, I want to make sure I don't have that faith. I want to make sure I've got faith that's the, the lasting faith, faith that will endure. And it does. It begins with faith. It begins with belief in Jesus. And from that point forward, it's a life of discipleship, a life of following him. Will you stand with me as I pray and then we'll be dismissed. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this cable that connects to this microphone that allowed us to to have amplification this morning. Lord, thank you for the small gifts that you provide for us, your kindness, your goodness, your faithfulness to us. It's all unmerited, all of it. Father, I pray that this morning that we would go from this place encouraged, encouraged to follow you this week in a way that pleases you, to follow follow you this week in a way that is in keeping with the word of God, to follow you this week devoted to, to you as our Lord, as our master, as our savior. Lord, guard us from these ways not to follow you this week and keep us faithfully by your grace. Lord, even as Peter said that we are being guarded by your power through our faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the end, we thank you for that reality. So Lord, may you be pleased with the lives that we live this week in response to that. We pray in Jesus' name, amen, amen. You guys are dismissed. 